Good morning. I am incredibly thankful for uh, my friendship with Pastor Dan. Uh, you guys are richly blessed, uh, whether you know it or not, to, to have him as your pastor. It's God's grace in your life. He's uh, very thankful for him. He has such a heart uh, for Christ Church. Thank you. And a heart for me. Look at that. You got me a water bottle. You could uh, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 2, 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. That's right. Yeah. Acts chapter 2, 42. This is God's word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, for the gift of your word. Father, that uh, you reveal to us in Scripture what is a reality, what is good, what is right, what is true. And in that revelation, you, you reveal to us that uh, we are not good, we are not right, we are not often true. We thank you, Father, for the blood of your precious Son that was shed for us. Lord, that we might stand in your presence uh, with a righteousness that is not our own and no longer with the sin that is our own. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son that allows us uh, this morning to boldly approach your throne, that we can make our requests known to you, Lord. And Father, we uh, do that uh, this morning, we, we confess our, our great dependency on you. We ask that you would use this time uh, for the building up of your body, that you would use this time to uh, wash your bride in the water of your word, that you would use this time to conform us more and more into the image of your precious Son. Lord, we confess we have done nothing to deserve uh, these, these rich blessings, but we ask for them in the name of your Son because he has earned these blessings for us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of people have a lot of different ideas of what church should be like. Right? Different people have different ideas of what church should be like. In part, that's because different people have different authorities as to what church should be like. Right? There's, there's different types of authorities that we can have our life uh, in our life to determine what is good, to determine what is right. Uh, some of these, uh, in our culture, we see a lot of people whose ultimate authority is their feelings. Right? And so if my ultimate authority is my feelings to know what is good and right, I'm going to use that to test whether or not a church is good or right. right? So if I feel some strong emotion, if I feel really good about myself, the conclusion would be, the church must be good, right? If, if I don't feel so great, well, it must not be that great of a church, right? If, if feelings are my ultimate authority. Another ultimate authority would be pragmatism. Pragmatism, that's the idea that uh, you test whether something's good and right by the results. And so, uh, if a church does something that brings in a whole bunch of people, must be good and right, right? So I could 
uh, we could have some pyrotechnics, you know, flamethrowers, and it would probably draw in a lot of people, right? Must be good. Pragmatism. All right, if, it, if it doesn't bring in people, then it must not be good. Right? Another authority that uh, people can have would be tradition. If it's a thing that we've always done, tradition is not a bad thing in and of itself, right? Feelings, too, are not a bad thing in and of themselves. But uh, if it's a thing that we've always done, it must be good and right. If it's new, it must not be good, right? Uh, novelty. If it is new, it must be good. This is the latest fad. It must be good. It must be right. People are excited about it. If it's old, it must not be good. Right? There's a lot of different authorities that, that we can have, and all of us have them. Uh, some of them are legitimate authorities, but none of them are capable of being the ultimate authority. Right? And as Christians, we have a different ultimate authority. We have a different ultimate authority to know what is good and right and true. It's God's Word. It has no errors. It's infallible. God is the authority over all things, including our feelings, including the results, including uh, traditions, what comes about that's new. Scripture alone is able to interpret to us what is actually good and right. And so, as we look around, uh, sort of in the modern church landscape, it, it's somewhat concerning. Because a lot of people, and, and we might have a similar temptation, uh, we, we decide a church based upon faulty criteria. We decide on a church based upon uh, something that's not capable of being an ultimate authority. And so, you know, the questions that people often ask when they're looking for churches, uh, is the music to my liking? Right? Does the teaching make me feel good? Are there th fun things for me to do? Is the church large and exciting? Are there people my age? Not bad questions, right? But all too often, the things that people value in a church are things that are not valued in Scripture. Right? I don't remember reading that in the pastoral epistles, right? Uh, Timothy, make sure you have a banjo. Is it okay to have a banjo? I sure hope so. I like banjos. But is that something that we should value when Scripture doesn't value it? We can all too easily value things that Scripture doesn't value while ignoring the things that Scripture does value. Scripture does value certain things when it comes to the church, when it comes to how we worship. So part of that is, frankly, we start with the wrong question in looking for a church. Often, we can be tempted to ask, how do I want to worship God? When we should ask, how does God want to be worshipped? All too often, we can be tempted to ask, what do I think is necessary in a church? When we should ask, what does God think is necessary in a church? That makes sense, doesn't it? God's the one that we're worshiping. Scripture, God's Word, is a sufficient authority in knowing what a church should be like. It's sufficient. It's enough. 
God's word is sufficient to tell us how he wants to be worshipped. God's word is sufficient to tell us what we ought to value in a church. God uh, doesn't leave us in the dark, so to speak. Whatever scripture commands for the church is sufficient for the church. Whatever scripture is silent on, banjos included, is not necessary for the church. Well, that should cause us to ask the following question, right? What does Scripture tell us about church? What does God tell us about how He wants to be worshipped? What does God tell us about what He values in a church? And the limits of our time today don't allow us to go into deep detail on this subject. But today we're going to examine the beautiful simplicity of church. We will see that the things that God commands us to do have a beautiful simplicity to them. There's very little that we actually need uh, to, to be a church. We need a Bible, an elder, we need an assembly of Christians, some bread, some wine, and prayer. Sorry, banjos. These simple things are the means God uses to build His church. These simple things are the means that we should value in church. And so with this in mind, let's uh, reread our text in Acts to catch a glimpse of the beautiful simplicity of God's church. Again, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they that is the the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Within this text, we see four things that the early church devoted themselves to. Note, devoted, committed themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Four things. First of all, we see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles were a unique group. Uh, They they both gave the inspired interpretation of the Old Testament. This is what this passage means in uh, Ezekiel or so on. And they also penned, they wrote, the inspired teaching of the New Testament. A devotion to the apostles' teaching is, in a sense a devotion to God's Word, both the Old and the New Testament. Now, in our day and age, we don't have apostles anymore. Again, they were a unique group for a unique time. But we do have the inscripturated Word of God. We have the apostles' teaching in here. And so, we're to devote ourselves to the teaching of God's Word. Simple. Apostle Paul makes this really clear in the the pastoral epistles. Uh, Those would be 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus. And time and time again, Paul gives a pretty consistent message to these these pastors. Uh, In 1 Timothy 6, verse 13, he tells Timothy and to all pastors, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. The public teaching of God's Word by a pastor is an essential part of God's church. 
It's essential because God has commanded it, and it's essential because God uses it to grow his people. Paul emphasizes this thought again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-4. through 4, He says to young Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul here solemnly charges Timothy, I charge you, Timothy, to preach the word to reprove, to exhort. He says that there's going to be a time coming, and it came quickly for them, and it's still here today. There's a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But Timothy, but Timothy is to press on in teaching sound doctrine. Whatever those guys are doing, Timothy is to press on with sound doctrine. Paul writes to Titus, another pastor in chapter 2, verse 1, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Again, it's a pretty consistent message as to what pastors ought to do. To teach, to devote themselves to the public teaching of God's Word. Pastors are to teach sound doctrine, to preach the Word, to proclaim the full counsel of God's Word. They are to handle God's Word uh, uh, reverentially, accurately. They're to proclaim God's Word in, in its fullness, the fullness of the law. It shows us our, our, our deep and, and utter need. And to preach fully uh, uh, the Gospel, the good news of Christ coming to meet that need. The good news of, of Christ's victory over our sin and death. The good news of Christ and His full righteousness that is credited to all those who simply rest in Him. This is what pastors are to commit themselves to. This is what we as a church are to devote ourselves to. To sit under the teaching of God's Word. It's a necessity. It's a necessity. And it's sufficient. It's enough. And it's rather simple. It's rather ordinary. There's nothing that seems spectacular about a pastor teaching God's Word. Uh, right now, I'm sure as you're looking at me, there's no golden aura around my head. Right? There's no heavenly uh, uh, a beam of light shining down. Well, there's these guys, but nothing from heaven. Right? There's no an uh, a uh, angelic chorus behind me singing. I'm just a sinful man called by God to teach His Word. It's simple. I'm assuming right now you're not having some sort of euphoric moment as you look at me. You're not having a mountaintop experience right now. It would seem by all the evidence of your senses that nothing is happening right now. But something is. Something is. God 
in His grace, uses this simple moment to build up His church. We don't always see it. We don't always feel it. But we believe it. Because this is our ultimate authority. Not our feelings, not our senses, but God's Word. We can have such a we can have such an assurance. If God tells us to do this, it's for our good. Who cares most about his, Christ's church? Christ. Not me, not you. Christ cares about His church. And so if He commands us to do something, it's not for nothing. You know, I, I have small children at home. If I tell my son to wash his hands after he uses the restroom, it's for a good reason. He doesn't, doesn't understand it. I hope one day he will. Right? It's because I love him. Eat your broccoli, son. This doesn't feel good right now. But why do I tell him to do that? Because I love him. This for his good. And, and God, how much more? I'm a sinful parent. God is a perfect Father. We are His children. If God commands the simple preaching of His Word, we can have great hope that it's for our good and that God will graciously use it for our good and for His glory. We, we live in a, in, in a culture, and we're impacted by this, whether we know it or not, where feelings really matter to us. And feelings are good. They're God-given, right? We can approach a moment so easily and determine whether or not it's good or bad by our feelings. Feelings are, are often the, the litmus test in our mind to know whether or not God is using something to grow us. And it's utterly faulty. It's not capable of telling us whether or not God is growing us. It's not designed for that purpose. You think about it. Um, go back in time a little bit. And, and as you were growing up, as your, as your body was growing, did you always have feelings of a big change? Sometimes you would, right? Those little growth pains and, and those sorts of things. But oftentimes, by and large, the growth of your physical body was slow, gradual, uh, often unfelt. You didn't feel every time you got a little taller or uh, your ears got a little bigger, right? It was gradual. And, and many of you probably, uh, like I did when I was a child, you have, you have your, your wall, right? Every house has a wall. Maybe not every house, but where you stand up next to it. Right, and your mom or your dad takes the pencil and makes marks along the wall, and you write your little name, and you're competing with your siblings, even though your brother is six and a half years older than you and you don't stand a chance. Not speaking from experience there. It's gradual, right? Six months later, another pencil mark. And you look at the wall and you say, I, I grew. Grew an inch, sometimes you grew more, sometimes you grew less. It was gradual. Right? It's the same way with our spiritual growth. 
It's the same way with our spiritual growth. Our spiritual growth does sometimes have deep emotional moments of joy or pain. However, ordinarily, our spiritual growth is unfelt, undiscerned, slow, but gradual and steady until one day you look back at the the pencil marks of your spiritual uh, growth and you see God actually is doing something in me. You know, if I look back uh, five years ago from now, I can see how God has gradually, surely, and steadily grown me. And I'm sure many of you can look back and see the same thing. This is incredibly important while sitting under the teaching of God's Word. Don't assume that just because you don't have some dramatic emotional moment today, that the Spirit is not using the teaching of His Word to grow His church. If that's your standard, you will be sorely disappointed. Or you will look for things that will not be good for your growth. There will always be a temptation to sort of um, gussy up this moment. To try to manufacture some sort of spiritual, emotional experience to make us think that something is going on. There's a temptation to think that the Word of God is dependent on us making it more palatable or entertaining or exciting. There's a temptation to think that the preaching of God's Word is dependent on us to make it effectual. How backwards is that? That the Word of God depends on a sinful man? No. The preaching of God's Word ultimately depends on the power of God. It's God's Word, and it's powerful enough on its own even if we don't feel its power. We can can trust that it is powerful because it is the very Word of God, the same Word that spoke you into existence, the same Word that spoke the universe into existence, is right here. So we don't need to gussy up this moment. I don't need pyrotechnics to give you spiritual growth. God's Word is sufficient. And so, what should we do as a church? We should devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We should devote ourselves week in, week out, to the simple teaching of God's Word every Lord's Day. Trusting that God uses uh, the beautiful simplicity of this moment to grow His church. Let us come uh, each Sunday hungry for the public reading of God's Word. Let us be hungry to hear of Christ and our great need for Him week in and week out, knowing that the simple preaching of God's Word is sufficient to build God's church. So, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Paul commands that of Timothy and Titus. God commands that of us. Secondly, secondly, we see that not only did they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, they also devoted themselves to the fellowship. The fellowship. This fellowship is the assembling together of Christians. 
It's a, a, a koinonia, it's a, a communing together, it's a joint participation with one another, a connectedness with one another. And this is what we're commanded to do every Lord's Day, to assemble together, visibly, as the church of God. Let's read Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. The writer of Hebrews is speaking about the glories of Christ's sacrifice for us. And in light of what Christ has accomplished, we pick up in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great, uh, great priest over the house of God, so because we can now enter into the true holy of holies through the blood of Christ, because we can enter in uh, through Christ, because we have Christ as our great priest over us, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. We're, we're cleansed by the blood of Christ, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Since we have confidence to enter into the, the true holy of holies, the presence of God through the blood of Christ. Since we uh, can do this because Christ has cleansed us from all of our sin, we are to draw near to God and we're to do so together, not neglecting to meet together. That's why we're here. Right? We're to join together in corporate worship. We are to assemble together as the body of Christ to be reminded of Christ in our worship of Christ. God saved us individually, right? But He saved us individually to place us in the body of Christ. And so we gather together to visibly demonstrate that truth that we are the body of Christ. That's, that's the very meaning of the word church. A, a church is... a Ecclesia means an assembly. It's an assembly. It's, it's here. Here we are, an assembly, assembling together. We're not a church if we're not assembled together bodily as a church. There's a, a physical reality. You know, I, I'm very thankful for our ability to, to live stream, to record sermons. Particular, particularly on days like this, you know, you open up your door and there's six feet of snow. You realize you have another the snow door to try to open up. I, I'm very thankful that we can do this, particularly too for those uh, who are in hospitals who genuinely can't leave. You know, it's a blessing to be able to still hear biblical teaching. But we ought not be confused in this. 
We shouldn't be confused about this. Watching the teaching of God's Word on the computer is not being in church. It's not an assembly. We are to assemble together under the public teaching of God's Word with the oversight of the elders that God has appointed over us. Right? It's an assembly. We, we are uh, very affected more than we know by our sort of um, consumeristic, indiv- individualistic mentality. And we're just can do this on our own. Or I just show up to church to get what I want to get out of it. The church is not a vending machine. The church is not a store where we can show up and get whatever we'd like out of it. The local church is a body of believers dependent on one another, dependent on Christ. So much so that if I'm not present in my my local church, if I'm missing, it's not only me missing out, it's them. They're dependent on me as much as I'm dependent on them. We're, We're joined together. We're committed to one another. We're committed to Christ together. We commune together. We assemble together. We have fellowship with one another. That we might speak the truth in love to each other. So that when each part of the body is working properly, the body grows so that it builds itself up in love. We need each other. Again, this Weekend, week out commitment to the assembling together is rather simple, rather ordinary. Sinful people saved by grace joining together week after week. Sinful people saved by grace feebly using the gifts that God has given them to bless one another. Sinful people saved by grace speaking true things to each other in love. There's nothing flashy about that. It too is uh, unlikely to build, uh, uh, bring euphoric feelings in you, particularly when you have someone speaking the truth and love to you. It can seem as if nothing is really happening. If our authority is anything other than God's word, we would have to conclude that nothing is happening. And yet. And yet, if God commands the assembly of the saints, if God commands that we speak the truth and love to one another, we can have great confidence that God will graciously build up His church through these simple things. Through you and I speaking the truth and love to one another. You and I joining with the body of Christ week in and week out together. And so, again, we've seen that Uh, The early church uh, not only devoted themselves to to, uh, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, we also see in Acts chapter 2.42 that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, this doesn't mean that you should go into the grocery store, to the bread aisle, start taking loaves of bread and breaking all of them. Okay? That's not what's commanded. Please don't do that. The breaking of bread here 
is a reference to the Lord's Supper, the communion. Paul, uh, in response to the abuses of the Supper by the Corinthian church, writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ commands his church to partake of the Lord's Supper. That's why we do it. He commands it. And as we do it, we're to remember, we're to dwell on the body and the blood of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to remember. Whereas uh, the teaching of God's Word points us to Christ verbally, the Lord's Supper points us to Christ physically in sort of a tangible way. I can feel it. I can smell it. I can hold it. The bread and wine are tangible reminders of the body and blood of Christ. That, that body and blood that was shed for me. We feast on this. We feast on the glories of Christ and His work for us. It's, a, it's an abundantly filling meal. This meal is the nutrition that my soul needs, the body and the blood of Christ Jesus. We feast on the fact that Christ, the eternal Son of God, became a man and committed His body to endure the wrath of God meant for my sin. That Christ, the eternal Son of God, shed His blood for me. That His blood washes away the the immeasurable filth of my sin. We feed on these very truths every time we take the Lord's Supper. What a, what a buffet of glory for my often malnourished soul. Christ dines with us in this supper. The supper is a, a foretaste of that long-awaited marriage supper of the Lamb where we as the, the one bride of Christ will feast with Him for eternity. We get a foretaste of this reality in the Lord's Supper. A little wafer, a little glass of wine, simple. Simple things. Nothing extraordinary doesn't become something that it isn't. Nothing profound about these things in themselves. Probably to the unbelieving world, it just seems like a silly snack time. How does this build up the church? Pragmatism wouldn't lead to this sort of church growth model. right? You just imagine a board meeting of guys trying to think, of how, how can we build up the church? How? I know. Let's have a little snack time each day each day. That'll really build up the church. Right? No. 
Pragmatism wouldn't lead to that model of church growth, the Lord's Supper. Feelings don't particularly indicate that God is sanctifying me through this. Yet again, if God commands the Lord's Supper, if God commands that we dwell on the body and the blood of Christ for sinners such as us, through bread and through wine, we have great hope. We have great hope. If God commands that we commune with Christ and each other as we eat the bread and drink the wine, then we can have great hope that this simple act is a means that God graciously uses to build His church. So Acts chapter 2, 42 again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and the prayers. A.W. Pink once said, Prayer is not designed for the furnishing of God with knowledge of what we need, but it is designed as a confession to Him of our sense of need. Right? We don't pray filling in God on the information. In case you didn't notice God, right? He, he knows that. But we come before God uh, dependent on Him in prayer. In prayer, we go before our Heavenly Father and we, we confess our great need. We consider His holiness and our sinfulness. We consider our neediness and His faithfulness. We cry out to God to have mercy, to do that which we are utterly incapable of doing to do that which we don't deserve to have happen. Lord, please be merciful. You don't have to do this thing. Have mercy. We need you. If there's one, uh, one thing, I'm sure the communion would be silly, but if there's another thing that would be particularly absurd to the unbelieving mind is this. I think... Uh, they could consider a type of prayer where if you pray hard enough, you could get God to do what you want Him to do. Right? I think you can conceive of a type of prayer where, you know, if you just pray well enough, you can twist God's arm, and then, and then He'll do it. He'll, his will will bend to your will. You know, I think that sort of prayer, the, the unbelieving, uh, independent, self-sufficient person can conceive of, but the idea of prayer, where we confess our great neediness, our great dependency, is a prayer, a prayer in which we look to God to show us mercy, we who deserve no mercy. That's an absurdity to the unbelieving mind that thinks itself to be the master of its own fate. Times of prayer during our assembling together is uh, absurd to the unbeliever. Times of prayer during our assembling together is, would seem unnecessary for the one who is self-sufficient, at least who thinks themselves to be self-sufficient. As Christians, we know otherwise. 
We know that we are wholly dependent, completely dependent, on the mercy and grace of God. That breath, I was dependent on the mercy and grace of God to give me that breath. Me, my ability to talk right now is a grace and mercy of God that he could take away and he would be right to do so. We are wholly dependent on the mercy and grace of God and so what do we do during our times of corporate worship? We cry out to the God in which we need mercy and grace from. We cry out to the God in which we are completely dependent on. We confess our great need that we are sinners. That there is one thing that we deserve in this life, and that is hell. We confess that. We confess our great need for Christ. That we need someone to bear our punishment. That we need someone else's righteousness to stand before God. We confess our great need for His Spirit. That, that all the labors of our hands are vanity, empty, pointless without the work of God. Unless He builds the house, we labor in vain. Unless He is in our midst right now, working, we are here in vain. We rely on the grace, the mercy, the faithfulness, and the love of our God, and He is infinitely all of those things. And so we go to our gracious, merciful, faithful, loving Father, and we bring our needs before Him. As we do this simple act, as we simply come to our Father as needy children, our Father is pleased to use this means to build up His church. Not because of the greatness of our prayers, but because of the graciousness of our God. Not because of the eloquence of our words, but because of the faithfulness of our Father. Prayer is beautifully simple. It's simple. It's just a simple coming to our gracious Father with great need and trusting Him to do what's best. And He uses that to build up His church. In conclusion, the church is God's church. The church is God's church. He gets to decide what we ought to do. Our worship is directed toward God. He gets to decide how He is to be worshipped. Man is not the consumer of worship. God is. And the customer is always right. God does not leave us in the dark as to what we are to do together as a church. Scripture is sufficient to tell us what we ought to devote ourselves to as a church. God uses the things He commands to build His church, and the things that God commands us to do are beautifully simple. We're to assemble together as the body of Christ. To listen to the public teaching of the Word of Christ to partake of the body and blood of Christ, and to approach God in prayer through the work of Christ. 
And we didn't detail it today, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to the praise of Christ. And as we do these simple things, simple things that our brothers in Africa are doing, in Asia, in, in Europe, in South America, these simple things, we trust God to graciously use what He has commanded to build up the church. It may not feel like anything is happening, may not look like anything is happening, but we can depend on God's faithfulness to save sinners and to sanctify saints through the things that He has commanded. And as we do see progress over time, as we see the lines on the wall get a little bit higher and a little bit higher, we know it is all because of the work of God. It's not because we came up with a great strategy. It's not because we came up with something flashy. It's not because we're doing something that appeals to the culture. It is because God is graciously using the simple things He has commanded us to do. Devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are infinite, eternal, holy, gracious. You are the only truly independent, self-sufficient being. Lord, we uh, confess our great sinfulness, our great ignorance. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your word, that you have revealed the things that we ought to do as, as the body of Christ that you don't leave us to our own devices. You don't uh, leave us to approach you in the way that we want to. But you tell us the way that we are to approach you in worship. That we are to commit ourselves to the preaching of your word, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And that we're able to do all of these things. We're able to approach you through all of these things because of the precious blood of Christ, shed for us. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your church that was purchased by the blood of Christ, that you paid an infinite price to redeem sinners such as us into the body of Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help us to think rightly about church and worship. Help us to take great confidence in you, not in our ability to figure out if things are working not in our feelings or our pragmatism or other things, but that we would rest in, in the all-sufficient, infallible, uh, your, your Word, Word of God. We thank You, Lord, that You are growing us through these things. And Father, when we see any growth, let us be quick to give You all the praise and glory, knowing that it wasn't because of something that we did, and we did it super well, or even... Uh, that uh, we sang well or prayed well or took communion well, that it was all because of your grace using those means uh, to, to grow us, to conform us into the image of your Son. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.